We'll now turn to the Lord uh, through his word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We've been walking through 1 Thessalonians these last three or four weeks. We're going to pick up where we left off right in uh, chapter 2 there. We're going to be in verses 1 through uh, 12. And I'm going to invite Tim Miller forwards to read out of the word. Hear the word of God this morning. Thank you, Brother Tim. Good morning. First Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and have been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls into his own kingdom and glory. The flower, grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. Thank you, Tim, for that reading. So come to the word. Let's pray one more time. Lord, we bow in our hearts before you in your word. We tremble before it. We know it is not within our own strength and power, within our nature, to be obedient to your word. We, God, we are distracted so easily. We are frustrated so easily. And we misunderstand so easily. Holy Spirit, come now. Work in our hearts. Take these words and apply them to us. Help help us now, truly. Enable us to hear your word and to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. When I was young, I went to a daycare after school because, like so many um, families today, both of my parents worked. Mom and Dad both worked. And during the summers, I also would go to this same uh, daycare, this camp that would uh, watch after me while Mom and Dad uh, went to work. We would often go swimming during the summer months, and they had a nice indoor swimming facility which we enjoyed, I think, pretty much every day, if my memory serves me right. 
I remember one day being very excited to go swimming and running around the edge of the pool, ignoring the large signs around the edges of the pool saying, do not run. Um, Next thing I know, my feet were above my head and my head was slamming against the very hard tile floor that went around the edge of the pool. I can almost still still feel that. You ever had an injury and you can almost, thinking about it, you could still even feel it? Like, ah, oh, that's the way that one was. I could still almost feel it pop in the, the tile floor there. So when I'm near swimming pools, often that moment comes back to me. And I think of that, that pain. That event left an indelible mark, not only upon my head, but my soul as well. Needless to say, I no longer run around swimming pools, and I'm quick to tell my kids the same. Don't run around the pool, kids. So what's Paul's problem here? Our passage today tells us that Paul and his associates had suffered in Philippi. They banged their head against the pool. And yet here they come, going to Thessalonica just not long after that, getting their head banging against the pool again. If you flip to Acts, you can read about it. You find that they were mistreated, beaten and thrown in prison for speaking to people about Jesus. Acts 16 and 17 tell us these stories. And now from what we've seen in the previous two weeks is that Paul gets the same reception here in Thessalonica as he did in Philippi. And for the same reason, speaking about Jesus. In other words, Paul was abused for sharing the message of Christ in Philippi. And then he turns around and does the same thing in Thessalonica and gets the same reception. And then after the events in Thessalonica, Paul is going to go to Berea and receive the same once more in Berea. I mean, the guy just keeps running around the pool. Don't you see the signs, Paul? We're going to throw you in jail. You're going to get beat up. It's like Paul just continues to do the same thing over and over again. Doesn't Paul's head not hurt? Does he not feel that pain? Why does Paul continue to speak of Jesus over and over again? Everywhere he goes, getting the same response. And he just continues to do it. Is it because Paul was some kind of a super tough person who didn't feel pain? High tolerance, right? High pain tolerance? No. Paul uses the word suffer here in our passage today. And in other places, Paul describes his sufferings. Take Philippians 3.9 as one example. Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. He feels it. He feels pain just like you and me. Paul's not on drugs, right? He's not some super tough, physically, you know, high pain tolerance person. And that's why he's able to just keep doing this. But it begs the question, why does Paul just continue to go through with it? How does he continue to go through with it? Again and again and again. The way he words it there in Philippians is 
is it's like the ministry itself. That his, his ministry has led to all of this suffering and caused all of this loss. Yet he keeps on going. He keeps doing it. Paul feels pain just like you and I. He suffers just like you and I. So how does Paul do it? Why continue on? How does Paul continue? Likewise, of course, this is not just an interesting discussion about what was going on with Paul, right? These things are given to us. These are words for us and the original audience, right? Paul went through it and he's telling the original audience, he's telling the Philippians and the Thessalonians about these things, but these letters have been handed down for our blessing and benefit. So the question is for us this morning is how do you and I continue on despite the many challenges we face our culture is rapidly turning against christians i recently put together an ad on facebook for our creation care event and like many things today um you're quick to get a bunch of trolls on there right so i had a number of trolls get on there and trash the event in the comment section and make some ridiculous claims about christians and the bible and so on and and then you're scratching, you're sort of like wrestling with like, do I respond or like, what do I even do? Do I hide the comments? What, you know, what do I do? Do I engage or just remove them? I decided to just hide the comments because the cultural climate right now in many places is so opposed to our message that it feels impossible to even have rational discussion about things that matter. To have a discussion about Jesus, to have a discussion about Life after death. How do we continue on in this environment? How do you and I find courage as Paul did to embrace the difficulty that comes with following Jesus and press on in our labor even when there are tremendous obstacles? That's what we're going to look at this morning out of the word. Before we do that, let's quickly recap what we've seen so far. In the previous section, chapter 1, Paul was extending thanks to God for the Thessalonian church. If you were to glance at chapter 1, you would see uh, these words there, starting in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God and, and our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, so he's giving thanks. He starts out by saying, I thank God for you, for what he's done in your life. That entire first section is thanksgiving. Paul goes on to talk about how he knows they're a people chosen by God because of all of the good fruit that he sees in their life. As I tried to explain last week, they weren't chosen because of their fruit. The fruit was a result of God's working in their life. Remember that distinction. Despite the many challenges. And Felicia, if you have that map, could you pull that up if you've got it close by? There we go. As you will recall, Paul was forced out of town uh, after only a short stay. And the opposition was really thick, uh, just like it was in Philippi. And before Paul could even do a great deal of ministry, uh, he was sent on his way. And he goes to Berea where he encounters trouble again. If you'll remember, he's in Troas. And he receives a vision uh, from someone saying, come over to Macedonia, share the word with us and help us. And he does that. And he goes to Philippi right in here. 
and he's thrown in prison and then, uh, you know, lots of troubles and struggles there. And then he's freed or the Lord sets him free. And then they go through here. They pass through these two little towns and over into Thessalonica. And they run him out of town there. And then Berea, and it says the, the Jews in Berea were more noble than the ones in, uh, in Thessalonica, it says. But the Jews in Thessalonica heard what he was doing over there and went over there and, and caused more trouble for him and ran him out of Berea too. So, uh, so Paul can't catch a break here, right? He's just one town to the next to the next uh, to the next. The opposition is very, very thick. And then he goes down to Athens and then over to Corinth. So pops down here to Athens and you can read about his debating with the philosophers there in Acts uh, 17, the Areopagus, and that really interesting uh, passage. And then he's going to hop over to uh, to Corinth. And he's going to stay in Corinth for a year and a half where the Lord is really working there and moving through his words. But while in Athens, Paul had sent Timothy to check in on the church in Thessalonica. And then they would later rendezvous over in Corinth where Timothy gives Paul an update on the things in the Thessalonian church. So Timothy is sent up to, to Thessalonica to check in because Paul is burdened and worried about them after he'd been run out of town um, only a few weeks into his ministry. And one of the things that Timothy is going to share with Paul is that there were some accusations made against him. He's going to come back mostly good news, but he's got a couple of things that are of concern. And one of those is that there's some accusations being made. So this section in chapter 2 here of 1 Thessalonians takes on a more defensive uh, posture, right? Chapter one was giving thanks. Chapter two, now you kind of get the feeling that Paul's being maybe a little defensive. Um, Verse one starts, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. So he's going to talk about his his coming, his uh, time there in Thessalonica. Paul is clearly shifting gears. And that word vain right there in verse 1, the end of verse 1, is translated as failure in some translations. That our trip there was not a failure. The idea of failure would seem to be focusing on the results, perhaps, right? Some of you came to faith. Therefore, our time in Thessalonica was not a failure. Um, Maybe it appears, if you have one of those translations, that Paul's thinking about the results, the the number of people that came to faith. Um, But that is not what Paul is getting at, I I don't believe. The NIV uses the phrase, not without results. Um, And I, I think that kind of misses the mark of what Paul is doing here. I don't think that translation really captures the right sense of the word. Paul seems here to be responding to accusations about his character, not about the results of the mission. As you'll see as we go through chapter 2, he's talking about his character, the way he conducted himself, not about the results this way or that way. So somehow there's accusations uh, coming at Paul that are questioning his motives behind his mission. And that is precisely what we're going to see Paul addressing here in this section. Was his trip there in vain? Were his motives ungodly? What was motivating Paul in his time in Thessalonica? This is the question. Look at verse 3 if you've got your Bible open there or to be on the screen. For our appeal does not spring from error 
or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Right. So Paul is talking about his heart. He said, what I came to do was from a right heart, from a right perspective, with godly motives. So this seems to be the question where uh, what was going on with Paul's motives. So I want to talk a little bit about potential ungodly motives okay, for doing the Lord's work. And we're going to see this as Paul defends his ministry. What were some of the things potentially that could have been wrong in Paul's you know, motivations here? And the first one he's going to address is deceit. That Paul was deceitful. He was trying to mislead people and deceive them. Look at verse 3 again with me. For our, our appeal. Sorry, there's my southern accent. Our, our appeal. Um, Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. The NIV has it, uh, for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you, he says, right? So this is what's in question, that Paul somehow came to deceive or or tricked tricked the people in his uh, presentation. Well, how would Paul do that exactly? What is that about? Maybe this seems strange. Uh, to us that this would be in question. Well, you see, what gave rise to this concern was the fact that in Paul's day, there were people who traveled around just like he did, and they had their own ideas and philosophies to promote, like itinerant philosophers and orators. In that time and place, there were some who prided themselves on their skills of persuasion. So often traveling philosophers would use all kinds of confusing analogies or elaborate metaphors or or wordplay that was clever or perhaps even a little uh, deceitful. The goal was not truth. The goal was persuasion. Some of these people prided themselves on being given something to defend and without any preparation whatsoever, being able to stand up and defend it and persuade their audience. This was an art, a rhetorical, an orational kind of art, right? These were professional speakers going around and presenting ideas, and the goal was persuasion. And as I've already shared, when Paul writes this letter, he writes from Corinth. And Corinth was a place where there were many such people. He writes in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. Paul says, I wasn't like these other speakers, you know, using all this convincing and persuasive and, you know, verbose language. He goes on, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And he says the same or as much, at least in verse three of our passage today, he says, for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor were we trying to trick you. And otherwise, in other words, I'm not trying to persuade you. I'm not just trying to you know, make an argument for argument's sake like others do. His motive was not deceit. I think that's clear. Um, That's one thing, at least, that Paul is pushing back against. The second potential false or wrong motive that Paul could have employed and that perhaps we oftentimes in our thinking about ministry and our thinking about how to further the message that perhaps we are tempted at times to use 
that is questionable. It would be entertainment. Maybe Paul was there just to entertain people, right? To give them an interesting and fun time. Was this Paul's motive? And this is closely related to the first potential wrong motive we looked at a moment ago. Look at verse 4 now with me. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. The professional speakers that traveled around in that time and place would have put on a show. They would have been very engaging and very powerful in their presentation. Their persuasion would have been almost magical and entertaining. The goal, of course, was to please the hearers, to put on a good show. You bought a ticket, I'm going to put on a show. That was the goal. Paul says that God gave them this message, this gospel, this good news, not to please man, but to please God. His point is that the underlying motive was not to please people. Right? Lord knows if that was my goal, I'd change a lot of things. Some of what we have to say is not easy. It's not about pleasing people. And sadly, I'm afraid that many today, many preachers, many churches have lost sight of their true goal. The goal is not um, to gain, of course, as big of a following as possible. It is not to be popular or to entertain or even be culturally relevant as much as we want to be relevant. The goal is to please God. One of the things that we have forgotten is that the way we present the message also says something about the message. The medium is a part of the message. We've forgotten this. There's a lot of science about this, actually, at this point. You can go um, read books like Neil Postman's uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Go read that book. Would teach you a lot about the influence of media or technopolis, another one by Neil Postman that's great. I recommend it. But one of the things we've forgotten is that the medium and the way we communicate the message also says something about the message, is a part of the message. If we dress the message up and make it all about entertaining audiences, we're saying something about God and about his message. And perhaps something that's misleading and not accurate. This message is not a show. It's not a performance. I'm not here to perform for you this morning. I'm not an actor. Okay? This is something different. And I know you know that, right? I'm preaching to the choir here. This message is not a show. This message we have to give people is something called news. And it's good news. Good news for people that desperately need it. Paul says, my goal was not to please or entertain you. You didn't buy a ticket to come see me so that I was obligated to perform for you. I brought you good news from God, is what Paul says. This leads to our third potential wrong motive, greed. Was Paul motivated by greed? Is greed what keeps him going town to town, even though he's thrown out and he's suffering? Well, he's like, well, I got to put food on the table. Guess I'm going to go do it again. Is that what Paul is motivated by? Greek orators, orators in that time and place often made a living off their speeches. They were professionals and they would charge a fee to attend 
and to hear their speeches. Paul addresses this concern also in this section. Look at verse 5 with me now. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. In the ancient world, flattery and greed were often connected. They recognized that flattery was evidence of the bad character of the person who used it to persuade or move others to do something for them. Right? You're bending their elbow by, by, or twisting their arm, so to speak, by, in a good way, by trying to make them feel really good. So you, they'll give you something and do a favor for you, maybe to give you money or to some kind of a favor. Paul says, as you know, Paul says, you know how I was. I was there. There was no masks. Right? I wasn't doing this over here and then behind the, you know, the curtain after the show doing this over here. He said, no, you knew how we were. Our mission was not money. Now look down at verses 9 and 10. If you've got your Bible open, you can drop down a few verses and look there with me. Paul says, for you remember, brothers. He's appealing to them, saying, I was there. You saw me. Our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses. And God also, how holy and Righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. Paul says here, you are witnesses that we worked hard. He said, I even worked another job, Paul says. Paul was a manual laborer. He took up work to not be a burden to many of the churches that he was trying to plant and start so that he could not burden people in many cases who were poor, right? He was calling poor people to himself and did not want to be a burden. In the letter to the Philippian church, in chapter 4, he writes these words. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So while Paul was in Thessalonica, the church just up the road, so to speak, right? That Paul had founded and then got run out of town. They were sending help to him. They were ministering to him through, you know, money and donations. And he admits that. He's transparent about that. He had received some donations. But it was not enough to support all of his needs so that he could focus completely on the ministry and the work of the gospel. So what did Paul do? He worked night and day. He took up another job. He was a manual laborer. He worked so as not to be a burden. The point is obvious right here. Paul was not out for money. He was not greedy. He was not tricking them with clever words just to get money. And God is his witness. That's the third potential wrong motive. And still yet another potential wrong motive is addressed. And of course, all of these apply to us too, right? I hope as you hear these things, you're wrestling with these questions for yourself in your own personal work to further the kingdom of God, whatever it looks like that you're wrestling with. What are your motives? Final uh, potential wrong motive that uh, Paul addresses here in this passage is fame and glory. Was Paul seeking fame? Did he want his name to be, you know, carved on stones and have statues of Paul everywhere. Is that his goal? 
Maybe his motive was not to entertain or, or to get money or to deceive, but perhaps it was fame. Many of the speakers of the day, these professional uh, itinerant philosophers and other speakers, would enter these cities that they would go into with great pomp and circumstance. They would have a big entourage with them and would be welcomed by great groups and, of followers coming in, you know, coming into town like there was someone important. I think of that scene in, it's funny because we were watching it not long ago, Aladdin, the Disney movie Aladdin. When they're coming into Agrabah or whatever, he's got his elephants and his, you know, gold monkeys and the whole nine yards, right? Look at me, I'm somebody important. And many traveling itinerant uh, speakers in that day had something like that. People who were there waiting with them to sort of make a big stir that, you know, this mighty and important person has arrived Though we did not plan it, these were the kinds of receptions that Tim and I often received when we went into a village or church. Some of y'all know that I went to Kenya this summer with Tim Frisch. And while I was there, the welcome was incredible. And oftentimes it would show up and there would be song and music and dance. And it was so very humbling. We weren't organizing it, though. That's probably the big difference, right, is some of these traveling philosophers that was a part of their approach to you know stirring up interest in their talks was to schedule big uh, entrances into cities and this would have been somewhat common in that day sometimes even unavoidable think of the lord jesus entering into jerusalem on the donkey right jesus didn't organize that right he's got all these people that loved him and wanted to see him and whatnot that would show up and were there as he comes into the city. Kind of a mixed welcome for Jesus, honestly. There's a lot of people that didn't like him too. Anyway, but Paul is going to remind the Thessalonians he made no such entrance. Right? There was no pomp and circumstances or circumstance surrounding his entry. Some scholars believe that maybe what was upsetting the people was the swiftness of Paul's exit and the lack of correspondence after the fact. So you think about what Paul did there. And now he's getting these accusations like, what's going on there? Why are they upset with Paul? Why do they think it was about fame? Or why agreed? What's going on? Well, some people speculate it's because he left so fast and then never had contact again for some time after that until this letter, of course. You have to remember Paul's message was good news. The good news had to do with God's love. He was telling them that Jesus was the long-awaited rescuer that had come to deliver them from sin and death. It was a message of love. Yet here was Paul appearing to some as a fly-by-night car salesman who was just seeking money and fame. Shows up, gets a little bit, creates a stir, and he runs on to the next town. This didn't jive with the message he preached. He was preaching love, but then treats us like this. What's that all about, Paul? Why did you leave so fast? Yeah, I know it was hard, but first sign of trouble, you head out of town. Come on, man. And no, and nothing for the last you know, five, six months. Why, Paul? Perhaps this was what was behind these accusations. Paul was just seeking glory. He didn't really care for the believers there. Well, what's Paul's response to these accusations? Look with me now at verses 7 through 12. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. 
being so affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves because you had become very dear to us. Paul appeals to their memory and says, I was gentle with you. I was like a mother with you. I did love you and I do love you. He goes on for remember, you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day. And he goes on to talk about that. And down to verse 11, for, you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you, charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Essentially, what Paul has done in this section is try and respond to these objections that Timothy brought back from the church. And essentially, he's saying our message and our character were in line, right? I brought you a message about God and his love for you, and I lived in the same. I loved you, and I cared for you, and I was not a burden to you in any way. He's reminding them of these things. So if Paul's motives were not deceit or entertainment or people-pleasing or greed or fame, what were his motives? What were his motives? And what perhaps should our motives be as we seek to live out our faith. What keeps us going? Think of that swimming pool analogy, right? That I started with. You experience pain, sometimes even as a result of your faith. It can stay with you, right? It leaves a mark. And then you can be hesitant going forwards to to do that thing again, maybe to share again, or to really pour yourself out for someone and to love someone. That's hard. Love is costly, right? You remember those things. So what keeps us going when we bang our head and we come back to that place again and we're flooded with those memories? If Paul's going town to town often resulted in suffering and pain, what is it that kept him going? Why does he keep running around the pool, so to speak? And what can keep us going? Let's look now. I see three Good motivations, three things that fueled Paul and perhaps also will fuel us as we labor for the Lord and pour ourselves out for him. Verse two, look at verse two with me quickly. We'll see the first two right there in uh, verse two and three. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. That's verse one, sorry. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. There's two things right there that will give us a sense to start with of where Paul is drawing his strength uh, from in the face of opposition. First, notice that phrase, in our God, right there in verse 2. The idea is that Paul is in Christ and Christ is in him. He's referring to his union with the Lord Jesus, his oneness by faith with Christ. He is one with Christ. And when we are one with Christ, we draw upon all that same power of Jesus, that same energy, that same spirit, that same love and willingness to sacrifice that is in Christ. In John 15, Jesus uses the analogy of a vine and branches. Maybe you're familiar with that analogy abide in me he says and i in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me i am the vine jesus said you're the branches whoever abides in me and i in him he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing paul was in the vine 
Paul was united to Jesus by faith. He was trusting, resting in Jesus's power and, and might. What we're seeing as Paul goes from one prison to the next prison and one beating to the next beating in town after town, what we're seeing is not the mighty power of Paul. We're seeing the mighty power of God at work in him to keep him going. And that same strength in opposition is ours too through faith in Christ. Paul is in Christ and being in Christ motivated him to do great things. As I shared when we were singing there a moment ago, remember Jesus' last words before they went back to heaven. I'm with you even to the end of the age. That motivates, doesn't it? When you're faced with challenges from mere mortals, from mere men, to know God is with me. That is an encouragement. It was encouragement for Paul. Paul knew nothing could separate him from Jesus. And he did great things for Jesus. That's the first thing. Second thing, second good motive. The second thing I see motivating Paul and it could motivate us was that this was not Paul's message. This wasn't his message. Right? Notice the phrase gospel of God there in verse 2. This can either mean the gospel about God or it can mean the gospel from God. And certainly both are are right. But uh, in context, I think it's clear that Paul is saying the gospel from God. Paul says, you didn't receive this as the word of men. You received it as the word of God. Paul is saying these are this is God's message. This is his words. Paul was given a commission and a call from God. And when you come up against opposition, nothing can steal you up and strengthen you like the knowledge that your commission comes from God, not man. There's power in that. Come what may, the Lord has given me a word to share and I will share it. And who am I to change it? Because it's not popular. It's not my word. I dishonor the one who gave me the word if I play with it and change it. And who am I not to deliver it? As it came to me, it comes from God. And God's called me to share it. And then the final thing I see here motivating Paul is the final words of this section. And I'll conclude with this. God calls us into his own kingdom and glory. This is the ultimate motivator. These were no doubt huge strengthening words for Paul as they should be for us. This is not our home. Our treasure is not here. Our life is hidden with God in Christ. It's not here. We have a kingdom and a joy and a glory that our future, that are coming and cannot be stolen from us, come what may. That's motivation. That keeps you going. These great truths motivated Paul. May they keep us going too as we fight the good fight challenge will be to resist temptation, right? We can hear this now and in here in the comfort and, well, not maybe comfort of the pews, but halfway comfort of the pews, right? And those of you in the back are probably pretty comfortable in those little cozy chairs, but we can hear these words and be comforted, right? Here and now. The challenge is out there. When we go out from this place, 
and we bump into all sorts of challenges and troubles. Let us resist the temptation to change our motives, right? And to be motivated by other things, by deceit, by people-pleasing, by fame or fortune. Let Christ be all. Amen.